To stay on top in business, stay on top of your technology with the new Business Desk podcast, the business of tech. Listen on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Bill Browder calls himself Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. Bill became one of the biggest foreign investors in Russia after the fall of the Iron Curtain and subsequently became a target for none other than the Russian president. And Bill wrote a book called Red Notice, which details his story and his, his fight to expose corruption within the Russian government. And Bill is with us this morning. Kia ora and welcome to the show. Great to be here. I wondered if you could go back a few decades for us. How did you first get involved in Russia? It's a funny story. I was, um, I'm American, you can tell from my accent. I was born in, in um, Princeton, New Jersey, <clears throat> grew up in Chicago, but I come from an unusual American family. My grandfather was the chairman of the American Communist Party uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, he actually ran for president on the communist ticket against Roosevelt in 36 and 40, and was then viciously persecuted <clears throat> during the McCarthy era. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm born in 1964, and when I was going through my uh, teenage rebellion in the 1970s, I was trying to figure out a great way to rebel from this family of communists. <laughs> and um, after growing my hair long, I grew into an afro. Um, that didn't upset my family. I followed the Grateful Dead around for couple months that didn't upset my family but then I came up with this perfect way of upsetting my family which was put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist and that really did upset them and so I I became a capitalist I went to Stanford Business School and I graduated in 1989 which was the year the Berlin Wall came down yeah and so I was trying to figure out what to do next in my life and I had this epiphany one day which is that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down. I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so that's what I set out to do. And I eventually um, moved to Russia and I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund. And it succeeded in becoming the, uh, I, I became the largest foreign investor in the country. Not only that, I mean, Her- Hermitage made a name for itself as a prominent activist shareholder. So it used its position owning equity in big Russian companies to agitate for change. And of course, those companies were corrupt. But but can you give us a sense of just how corrupt some of those companies were? Very, <laughs> is, is, is the short answer. So a good example is a Russian company called Gazprom. You might have even heard of Gazprom. It's the largest gas company in Russia. It's one of the largest gas companies in the world. At the time that I invested in Gazprom in the late 1990s, um, it was trading at a 99.7% discount to BP and Exxon per barrel of hydrocarbon reserves, Mm. 99.7% discount. And the reason it was trading at such a big discount was that everybody in the market assumed that every last cubic meter of gas and gas reserves had been stolen out of the company. Mm. And so we, we decided to do a, a, a investigation, a stealing analysis, if you will. And we discovered that, yes, a lot of stuff had been stolen out of the company, um, but that only represented 9.65% of the total reserves of Gazprom. Wow. And so uh, literally the oil and gas reserves as big as Kuwait had been stolen by seven members of Gazprom management. 
And so we did two things. One is we, I publicized the, um, the, the stealing, you know, and all the different schemes that they came up with. And by doing so, it actually uh, set off a whole chain reaction and, and the share price went up and doubled and doubled again and doubled again after that. And, um, and I, I discovered that basically it was a great business model to, to, to do these investigations and then to expose them. And so we did the same thing at the National Savings Bank where, where there was all sorts of insider dealing and the National Electricity Company where they're trying to strip assets and, and various oil companies where they were selling oil to themselves for nothing. And, 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 and even though the, the corruption was in the billions, just exposing it often led to huge increases in the share price. Mm. And so it, it was kind of a great time at that moment to be, you know, making money and doing good in the same job. What did you make of Vladimir Putin when he first came to your attention? Well, there was a time when he was, in my mind, a good guy because he was fighting with the same oligarchs that I was fighting with. They were stealing power from him as the same t- at the same time as they were stealing money from me. And so every time I would put one of these exposés out there, mm. he would step in and do something about it. And so there's this, this expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And for a while, that was my relationship with Vladimir Putin. I never actually spoke to him or had conversations of any sort. But every time I would be doing these exposés, he would step in to go after these people that were his enemies and use whatever power he had. And, um, and so for a while, I was really enthusiastic about Putin. I thought, this is a good guy. But it turned out that, that he was only a short-term <laughs> ally mm. because he, he wasn't so upset about the oligarchs per se. He just wanted to become the biggest oligarch himself. And so he did that by arresting the richest oligarch in Russia, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He arrested him, put him on trial, and allowed the television cameras to come into the courtroom and film the richest guy in Russia sitting in a cage. So <laughs> the other oligarchs said, went to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? Yeah. And he said 50%. <laughs> and at that point, he became the richest man in Russia, and richest man in the world, actually. And at that point, my interests diverged from his. There was another turning point of sorts for you. In 2008, your corruption that you had experienced turned to something worse. I think a couple of years earlier, you had been stopped from entering Russia. But in 2008, your lawyer and friend, Sergei Magnitsky, was arrested, detained in inhuman conditions. And a year later, he died in custody under the care of the Russian authorities. Now, this, this whole event is really well covered and articulated in your book, Red Notice. But what did Sergei's death tell you about the Russian government? Because this was something more than just corruption in your eyes. So Sergei had discovered a $230 million government corruption scheme orchestrated by government officials. And he thought that if he were to expose it, that he would be treated as some type of patriot, you know, that this is money being stolen from the government. Mm. And um, instead of being treated as a patriot, he was arrested by the officials he exposed, put in pretrial detention, tortured for 358 days, and then murdered at the age of 37 on November 16th, 2009. And what, what, and, and, and even worse, after he was killed, the Russian authorities then um, promoted the people and gave them state honors, the ones who killed him. And then in the most shocking miscarriage of justice, they put Sergei on trial three years after they murdered him 
in the first trial against a dead man in Russian history. Mm. And mm. what it shows is that the system is just so bent. I mean, it's, it's such a cynical and disgusting uh, degree that like nothing good can happen in Russia. They put Sergei on trial, but they put you on trial as well, Bill, and you were convicted in absentia. Interpol introduced a, a, an arrest warrant for you. Fortunately, United States authorities and various other authorities have so far refused to deport you or hand over you uh, to the Russian authorities. But given the Russian history, recent history of pursuing state enemies in foreign jurisdictions, and I think of the Skrupol poisoning in the UK, for example, how does that affect your life? Well, the Russians are very mad at me. They're very mad at me because... uh, after Sergei's murder, I went on a campaign to get justice for him. And that campaign culminated in a piece of legislation named after Sergei Magnitsky called the Magnitsky Act, which imposes asset freezes and visa bans on the people who killed him and the people who commit other similar abuses in Russia. And um, Putin is a person who's committed a lot of abuses in Russia and thinks that his assets will be frozen. And so I've become a sort of number one target for them. Mm. And um, as a result of that, I've been threatened with death. I've been threatened with kidnapping. They've issued eight Interpol arrest warrants for me. Um, They've begged the British government to uh, extradite me and hand me over. They surveil me. They uh, hack me. They they, um, uh, make movies about me. They sue me. They have whole departments in the troll factory trolling me. Um, There's a whole sort of infrastructure devoted to try to ruin my life. Um, and, and on one hand, that, that could be seen as being very demoralizing, and there are times when it is. But on the other hand, what it shows is that what I've done has really um, gotten under Putin's skin, that mm. we've really kind of hit, hit him back hard. But are you scared? Well, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now. This is not the, uh, you know, this has been going on for more than a decade. And you can't spend a whole decade of your life scared. And, and most importantly, I don't live in fear because if you live in fear, you modify mm. your behavior. So you hope to become less fearful. And, and I'm not going to modify my behavior in terms of pursuing the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky um, because he, he was even more brave. You know, he, he, was, he was pursuing these guys while he was in jail and, and much more exposed to them than I, I could ever be. And so sort of my duty to him not to buckle under any feelings of mm. fear and just to you know, suck up my gut and stand strong. Um, and sometimes you have to stand up to uh, a bully, and that's what Putin is. What have you made of the moves around Ukraine over the last month or two? Well, Putin is a guy who's um, really scared. He, he's tried to stay in power for his whole life. He's, he's been there for 20 years. He's stolen a lot of money. He's got all this money that the oligarchs are holding for him. That money has never been spent on, on the Russian population they're getting hungry and cold and angry. You know, hungry, cold, and angry people in a dictatorship sometimes rise up. Mm. And he's terrified of that. And so um, he doesn't want any of that anger directed towards him. And, and at this point, he owns it. I mean, he owns whatever's happened to the Russian people. He can't blame it on anyone else. And so what do you do in a situation like that where you're a dictator? You've been there for 20 years. And you want to stay for as long as you can. Um, you try to deflect that anger away from you. And how do you do that? You create a foreign enemy. And he's created this sort of whole big narrative that the West is surrounding Russia with NATO. They're going to invade. They're going to uh, bring. Uh, they're going to put their missiles in Ukraine, and therefore 
as a strong leader, he's got to prevent that. And so he's created this fake narrative um, of this that, that Russia is surrounded. And um, and he's got everyone in Russia watching him standing up to the West. And he's succeeding very brilliantly with this whole thing with, you know, by putting his troops on the border, because all of a sudden, all these Western politicians and heads of state are all kissing the ring, going to Putin, begging him not to do anything terrible. And, and, and the, you know, he's now gone from a, a country with an economy the size of the state of New York. He's being feted and, and approached and respected by every world leader. And, and he's the center of the conversation. And so for him, it's, it's just, you know, exactly what he wants. Mm. How do you think it will resolve itself? There's only one person who really knows the answer to that question, and that's mm. Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin is looking at it um, in in very rational terms, in terms of risk reward. He's worried ultimately about his own money. Will will the West freeze his money? Mm. My feeling right now is that um, I think he's scared enough of it that he's looking for some way of, of of you know backing down a little bit. But but he has to be a winner in his mind. He has to show the Russian people he stood up to the West, and so it creates a very ugly scenario where where in order to prevent a war, the West will end up appeasing him in some way, which is totally unjustified. Hmm. Well, Bill, it is really good of you to give us your time and share your expertise with us. We very much appreciate it. It's going to be fascinating to watch as um, events continue to unfold in Ukraine. But thank you so much. Thank you. That is Bill Browder. He has lived an amazing life and he's written an amazing book. The book is called Red Notice.